Let's turn now, friends, to the portion we read together. <clears throat> Luke 23. <clears throat> and we read in verse 42, Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross, or the thief on the cross speaking to Jesus, rather, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. <clears throat> the world has always been fascinated by tragedy. Many people love to study tragedies such as you find in Greek mythology. And from a worldly point of view, at least, this is the greatest tragedy of all time. The rejection, the persecution, the killing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was cruel in the extreme. It was unnecessary and unjustified by any human standard. And the whole tragedy was made worse that it was done in what the Bible calls the house of his friends. It was done in malice by people that God chose to be his chosen family on this earth. But you know, friends, we can never understand the persecution and the suffering and the death of our Lord if we leave God himself out of the equation. When we view these events from God's perspective, it's no longer a tragedy. It's no longer a tragedy. It's a carefully executed plan on God's part to save men and women and boys and girls from their sin. Now, it is, of course, heartbreaking that men had to behave so inhumanely as we see in the gospel record regarding our Lord's demise. They did their evil deeds out of hate and malice, whereas God did what he did out of everlasting love and mercy and grace. Now, in a strange way, the entire gospel story is encapsulated in the single incident recorded here from verse 39 to verse 43, the story we call the thief on the cross. Because in that frame, we see sinners, the Savior, God's mercy and grace, deliverance and forgiveness, despair and hope. It's all encapsulated in that one frame. But we see something else here. We see how Jesus Christ can save sinners even from the very jaws of death itself. And that reminds us of the truth, a phrase I suppose we tend to use rather glibly, where there is life, there is 
That's quite a solemn phrase, you know, my friends. Where there is life, there is hope. So don't you give up on anyone. As long as the breath of life is in their nostrils, there is hope for that person. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what sin they have committed in life, there is hope for everyone in whose breath of life is in their nostrils. So it's not only from a worldly point of view that the story of Jesus Christ ended in tragedy. In, uh, rather, it is from a worldly point of view, because in reality, it actually ended in triumph. The greatest triumph ever witnessed on this earth. You see, Jesus emerged from his time on earth, his 33, approximate 33 years, demonstrating a fourfold victory over sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And that's why the Christian gospel is good news to the entire world. Jew or Gentile, black or white, whatever nation, whatever culture people may be living in, this is the best news they could ever hear. And that's why the Christian gospel is preached in all the nations. That's why Jesus sent the church out with that very specific commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Miss no one out, regardless of who they are. Now, since uh, our leaders turned their backs on that gospel, they have left our citizens with nothing but fear and despair and a sense of their own lostness. We're living in difficult times, my friends. I feel so sorry for our nation. I feel so sorry for our world, at least the parts of the world that have turned away from the gospel. What have they got if they don't have the gospel? I want to look, first of all, at the context in which this story is found, because I think it has quite a bit to teach us. God knew from all eternity that the world was going to require a savior. So a plan was put in place within the Godhead. And in that plan, each person of the Trinity would have a role to play. God the Father would conceive the plan. God the Son would execute the plan. And God the Holy Spirit would apply the plan to individual men, women, and boys and girls. Now, in the context of this story, we are in the final stages of our Lord's time on earth and the role our Lord would play in this plan. He would, after his resurrection, continue, of course, but at a different level, at a different level. Now, meanwhile, our Lord has been here arrested, as we read, and he's been tried, first of all, by the highest court of Judaism, 
court known as the Sanhedrin. And then he was tried by Herod, and then he was tried by Pilate. This was all fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. They tried everything to make charges against him stick. They tried everything. And despite himself, Pilate, that wicked, wicked man, had to conclude, I find no fault in this man. As if to say, Look, I tried this, I tried that, I tried the next thing, but I cannot find a fault in this man. And in the end, of course, we know that they had to pay false witnesses to tell lies about Jesus. Yet in a strange way, my friends, God's hand was in all of that. God's hand was in all of that. They couldn't find fault with him for one simple reason. As we are taught in Hebrews chapter 7, he was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. Nevertheless, releasing him was not an option. It was not an option. Not if God's plan were to bear fruit. The closest examination by the cleverest lawyers and barristers could never, ever find sin, fault, failing, or guilt in Jesus Christ. However, what his enemies failed to understand was that he actually bore more sin and guilt than all of them put together. Can I repeat that? He bore more sin and guilt than all of them put together. They neither understood this, nor could they ever believe it. And their ignorance reflected how little they knew or understood or believed of Old Testament Messianic prophecy. God told them about all of this. If they had listened to Isaiah the prophet, Messiah's sin and guilt is written in Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was the guiltiest man at Calvary. And they couldn't see it because they didn't know the scriptures. As Jesus told others on a different subject, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. And that's where the greatest part of human error comes from. Ignorance of God's word and God's laws. And that, by the way, as we were trying to demonstrate in the morning, is the reason why the world is taking such a drastic turn these days. It has become ignorant of the teaching of the Bible. Meanwhile, when Pilate suggested his release as a sort to his own conscience, I have no doubt, the Jews were of one voice. Without mercy, in verse 21, they shouted, 
crucify him, crucify him. This was their verdict. And all too soon, we are in verse 33, they came to the place called Calvary. By the way, this is the only example of this word Calvary in the entire Bible. You won't find it anywhere else. Matthew, Mark, and John call this place Golgotha, whereas Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to use the Latin word Calvary. Now, I find that very interesting. Both words, actually, Calvary and Golgotha, they mean the same thing, the skull or the place of the skull. Why did God, the Holy Spirit, inspire Luke to use Calvary? and not Golgotha. Well, I think one reason, as much as we can analyze these things, is that the use of Calvary was favored because it was more likely to find a place in Christian history, in Christian memory, in Christian songs, and in Christian folklore. You see, it rolls off the tongue far easier than Golgotha. And I'm quite sure in my own mind that that is why God ordained that Calvary would be chosen over Golgotha. You see, my friends, God uses every lawful device to promote the gospel story, to promote the life times and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in every culture on earth. He uses every legitimate means to make sure that boys and girls and men and women hear this wonderful story. And we know that more books and songs and poetry have been written about Jesus Christ than any other religious figure in all of history. And that's not to mention the millions upon millions of sermons preached in every language on this earth. Can you imagine, since you got out of bed this morning, can you begin to imagine the countless sermons that have been preached throughout the world in the last 12, 15, 18 hours? Quite incredible. And all focused on this one man, who was crucified 2,000 years ago. Let me move on to look at these two thieves. Verse 32. Two other malefactors were led with them to be put to death. Now, who were these two men? If I were to give you a piece of paper and a pencil here this evening and ask you, write down, Everything you know about the two thieves on the cross, how much would you write? Well, we know this much. They weren't in the least sympathetic to God. They had no time for God, nor were they interested in what Jesus was doing on this earth. They readily joined his persecutors. We read in Matthew 27, verse 44, the thieves plural, both of them. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. 
So even after being lifted up on the crosses at Calvary, this thief that was saved was persecuting Christ every bit as much as the other thief. They took perverse pleasure in mocking our Lord despite their own precarious situation. So to all intents and purposes, they were sin-hardened criminals. The term malfactor, by the way, is, uh, means something like a, a doer of evil. It's quite a strong word. It's not merely a thief. It's a robber. And perhaps even a terrorist would be closer to its original meaning. So having said that, let's try and do justice to the background and the cultural influences that were brought to bear on these two men. They were born into Jewish families. We know that from history. And they would have been raised in a Jewish religious environment. Everybody was back in those days. And they would have been under the religious influences which prevailed the nation of Israel in biblical times. Now, that was true of virtually everybody uh, that lived within the borders of Israel. So before entering their life of crime, they would have been exposed to some degree to Old Testament teaching on Messiah, especially the teaching on the expectation of a coming Messiah. It would be impossible to live in Israel in those times and be ignorant of that particular teaching, regardless of what your attitude was toward it. Plus, even in their life of crime, and perhaps particularly due to their life of crime, these two men, I would suggest to you, would have noted very carefully certain aspects of our Lord's ministry. For example, which criminal would not have noted the story of a man who could turn water into wine? I would suggest to you that every criminal in Israel would have known about this man and the powers that he had. Which criminal would not have noted the story of a man who escaped the authorities with such remarkable ease on two occasions at least, once in Nazareth and once in Jerusalem, and listen to how he escaped. This is in Luke 4 and John 8. He passed through the midst of them. He simply walked through them. Now, which criminal would not have noticed that with great care? They would want to be friends with this man at that earthly criminal level. He would have been a hero in the eyes of every criminal, albeit for all the wrong reasons, of course. And then there are the events recorded for us here. Look at verse 32. Two other malefactors were led with them to be put to death. Now, the usual picture drawn by Christian artists is that of Jesus 
walking alone, bearing his cross on the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, on route to Calvary. Now, of course, that's not an accurate picture. We know from a reading here that Simon the Cyrenian was there to help Jesus carry the cross. But more important for our purposes here this evening, these two men were there. Look at us, verse 32 again. Two other malefactors were led with him. They also were walking the Via Dolorosa along with Jesus. Now, the reason that's important is this. They witnessed the surge of sympathy for Jesus en route to Calvary. Verse 27. There followed him a great company of people and women which bewailed and lamented him. They heard all of this. Nobody was lamenting them, but they would have noted the significance of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to the multitude. They would have heard these people lifting their voices in much praise of him. And there's no doubt that they would also have articulated who and what he was, their expected Messiah. But no one knew that in the midst of that tragic procession, God was at work. God was sowing the seeds of the gospel. Neither thief, of course, would have been aware of this, nor conscious of it. Yet that seed was the sown, nevertheless, of that we can be sure. You see, my friends, whenever men or women or boys and girls, wherever they hear the Bible being read, whenever they hear the gospel being preached, gospel seed to sown in that mind, be it a child, be it an adult, be it an old person. Gospel seed is sown in your mind whenever you hear the word of God read or preached. Now, this fact at this time was only known unto God. But isn't it the teaching of our Lord's parable on the sower and the seed? What happens to that seed when it is sown? That all depends on the soil, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Meanwhile, all three prisoners arrive at Calvary, verse 33. There they crucified him, the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. A more despairing and hopeless picture is hard to imagine. However, when all hope seemed lost forever for those two thieves, God, in his mercy, planted another seed. Because from the middle cross, these two thieves heard this prayer in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now to one thief, these words were the rantings of a religious man. Not more than that. The rantings of a religious man. But then you see, my friends, his heart, his mind, was the stony ground soil of our Lord's 
parable. Can I add the stony ground soil Jesus warned us about in that parable? The gospel seed planted in this lost thief, if I can refer to him in that way, the reputation of Jesus that he witnessed on the Via Dolorosa, the witness he heard from bystanders calling out to Jesus, all died with himself. He didn't take the opportunity to capitalize on the seed God sowed in his mind. And that's always the danger, my friends. If boys and girls and men and women neglect gospel seed sown in their minds. Now I'm going to pause here. I'm going to ask you, and I'm especially talking about those who don't believe that they are born again Christians here this evening. Think about your own background. Think about your life as a child, growing up in adolescence and indeed in adulthood. Your upbringing, your background, the various Christian influences that came to bear upon your life. How many times did you hear grace being said? How many times did you hear family worship being conducted? How many times did you go to Sunday school? How many times did you sit as you're sitting here this evening under gospel preaching? What was happening on those occasions? I'll tell you what was happening. God was sowing gospel seed in your mind. Now, the question you have to ask yourself here this evening, what kind of soil did that seed all into in my life. What kind of soil? Because if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this evening, is it because you have a stony ground soil in your mind? Is that why? Think about that, my friends, children, adults, the elderly, if you're still here without Christ, think about that. What happened to all that seed that God planted in your mind? Let me move on, thirdly, to look at God's seed-bearing fruit. Verse 42. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now notice the proof that the two thieves knew something about Jesus. 
This is the lost thief speaking in verse 39. If thou be Christ, save thyself on us. Doesn't say if thou be Jesus of Nazareth. No, no. He didn't use this word Christ in, in, in this is a translation. What he would have said, if thou be the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. So he knew all about the anointed one. He knew all about the Messiah. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. He evidently heard evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. But meanwhile, God used those mocking words of his, because they were mocking words, verse 39. He used, God used these words to convict the other thief. Ah, oh, how amazing are God's ways. He used him to convict the other thief of his sin. His friend's sarcastic mocking sank deep into his own conscience. And then the Holy Spirit brought the gospel seed God had planted to fruition. He suddenly realizes who the man in the middle was. It dawned upon him the identity of the man in the middle. His Savior was right beside him, and he didn't even know it. How many of you are like that? How many are in our congregations? How many are in our families? And the Savior is right beside you, and you don't seem to realize it. We use that phrase so glibly from blind Bartimaeus, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He's not just passing by, he's right beside you. Whenever you hear the gospel, whenever you come to church, Christ is right beside you. Meanwhile, this man immediately broke rank with his former accomplice in crime. And that itself, by the way, is a great token of grace, a determination to break with the world, to break with worldly things, to break with worldly ways. That's a great token of grace, my friends. So he challenged his ex-friend, <clears throat> verse 40, Do you not fear God? seeing the what in the same condemnation. How incredible is that? This man clearly sees hell opening up before the two of them. So his guilt pours out of him, verse 41. We receive, he says, the due reward of our deeds. This is what we deserve. This is what we ought to be cast into, this depth of hell. Probably never used language like this in his entire life. But nevertheless, knowledge of guilt, condemnation, and penalty was there. Buried deep in his subconsciousness. Is that true of you? I know it was true of me. I spent years, as some of you know, years of my life 
pretending that I didn't know anything about the gospel, pretending that I'd never heard of Jesus and the gospel and salvation and heaven. But when the Spirit of God came, it was like God had opened a well in my mind. And all that information which I had imbibed as a child, all of it came bubbling up to the surface. It was there all the time. I had buried it deep. I had suppressed the truth in righteous and unrighteousness. Some people spent years denying this kind of knowledge in their lives. I know I did. Then came these amazing words from this man, verse 41. This man has done nothing amiss. Ever think about these words? Here we have a thief, a robber, a terrorist, defending the innocence of Jesus Christ. How incredible is that? Especially while at the same time, those who profess to be God's people were crucifying him. What a bizarre world we live in. But then, of course, this man was no longer a thief. He was no longer a robber. He's a born-again Christian. He has passed from death unto life. So he does what every born-again Christian must do. He casts himself upon the mercy of his Savior. Lord, remember me. Oh, remember me. When thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. Whatever else you do, remember me. But what remarkable words spoken to a man whose own life was about to end. What remarkable words. What's the point of asking a dying man to remember you? Unless he was seeing beyond the horizons of time and sense. What occurred here, my friends, usually takes more or less time. In some cases, it can take months or years. But you see, God, in his sovereignty, can speed up this process if and when the time is short. So his conviction of sin, his justification, his repentance, his confession of faith, all took place virtually instantaneously. This was the proverbial brand plucked from the burning. Now, whatever we make of the prayer in verse 34, Father, forgive them for the known of what to do. This man grasped the reality that Jesus Christ could intercede for him. Lord, remember me. So what a picture. Three crosses. Three men. Three death sentences. And each man dies a different type of death. The unrepentant thief dies the death of eternal damnation. 
His former friend dies the death of the righteous. The man in the middle, he dies the death every believer deserves. Three men, three different types of death. And furthermore, the words of Jesus to this believing thief or ex-thief, they are actually and should be celebrated by us at the death of every believer in every age. Verse 43, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. These are the words of Christ to every born-again Christian. And this is why we don't mourn as the world mourns. This is why we can, if possible, celebrate when the Lord takes another jewel home to place in his crown. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So in the eyes of the world, my friends, the picture on Calvary's hill may very well seem despairing. But nevertheless, the greatest victory ever gained on this world took place in this instance. And some saw it. For example, listen to the words of a witness who was standing at the foot of the cross. Verse 47, a Roman soldier at that. Certainly. This was a righteous man. This was a righteous man. But he said more than that. Mark tells us, Mark 15, verse 39, truly, this man was the son of God. An eyewitness. Now let me close by asking you, what kind of picture do you see of the cross of Calvary? What kind of picture do you see? Do you see here a battlefield? A battlefield upon which Jesus Christ defeated your own four greatest enemies, Sin, Satan, death, and the grave. Is that how you see Calvary? Remember, if you don't see Christ as this thief saw him, you will be left to fight those four deadly enemies on your own. But meanwhile, our time has gone due to your presence here in church this evening. Gospel seed has been sown once again in your mind and in your heart. I beg of you, my friends, young and not so young, don't let that seed die. Water that seed with your tears of repentance as you cry out to the Lord Jesus before you go to sleep this evening. Lord, remember me. Remember me. 
Amen. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, we thank thee that thou art able to pluck brands from a burning. Thou art able to deliver sinners from the jaws of death. Thou art able to transform the lives of men and women, of boys and girls, instantly or through a process, whatever seems good and wise in thine own sight. Be gracious to each one gathered here this evening whose desire is that thou should remember them. So bless us, Lord, and bless us as a congregation. Bless the conference later on this week. Bless the speakers and grant that thy name would be magnified and glorified and that we who serve thee in the corner of thy kingdom here would be greatly encouraged for Jesus' sake. Amen.